because he was born, because he died, and because he now lives, we can go to the Father in prayer. Let's do that. And Father, we ask for a fresh awareness of our need for a Savior. We pray, Lord, in this upcoming year and and forever in the future to come, that you would be good to show us our hopelessness and our helplessness apart from Christ, and that you would keep us from trusting in self-righteousness, trusting in ourselves. We pray we would know the Savior because we know we need a Savior, and because we know that Jesus is a great Savior. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. So we pray for some today that they would perhaps, for the very first time, come to him. They would draw near. They would, through Christ, taste and see that you're good. We pray for Christians today, tomorrow, and in this upcoming year. Lord, that you would grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus that you would continue to build your church, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be more done here on earth like it is in heaven. We pray you'd give us what we need and we pray, Lord, that we would trust you for what you've given. We pray you'd keep us from murmuring. We pray... Lord, that Christ would be our hope, our satisfaction, our joy, our peace above all else. Lord, you've given many joys, you've given many gifts. And we want to enjoy those and give thanks to you for them. But we also want to acknowledge, Lord, that they can become idols, we can love them more than you. We can trust them more than you. We pray you'd keep us from that. Be glorified as we look into your word, as we sing, see the King of glory again. We pray you'd give us eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see him who came and lived and died and now lives again on our behalf. Amen. You can be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm 24, Psalm 24, but I don't want to start right there. I want to mention a verse in the New Testament. One of the best summaries of the essence of what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas, I think, is found in John chapter 1, verse 14. Just listen to it without turning there. John tells us that Jesus is the Word. He's God's word in the flesh. The word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. And his glory is like that of the only begotten of the Father. And his glory is full of grace and truth. Well, that's some remarkable stuff. That the word dwelt among us. That we've seen his glory. That's 
the essence of what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. And today what I'd like to do is to try to show you how remarkable that is by going to Psalm 24 and then coming back to John 1 later on. But John 1 and this idea of Jesus dwelling with us is rooted in an Old Testament, uh, well, Old Testament theme that's in many passages. Psalm 24 is one of them. We've been in the study of the book of Psalms this fall and into the winter, and we've landed on Psalm 22, 23, and 24 in the three weeks preceding Christmas. They're uniquely about Christ, and so many people have put them together for a short sermon series in the past. Some have called it the cross, the crook, and the crown, Psalm 22 being the psalm of the cross, Psalm 23, the psalm of the shepherd with his crook, his staff. And today we come to Psalm 24, the psalm of the crown, because it speaks of the king of glory. Let's read it together. It's a psalm of David. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Well, you see, it ends on this familiar theme. At least it's familiar to you if you've listened to Handel's Messiah. This familiar theme of the king of glory, lifting up heads, oh, gates, lift up your doors. The king of glory would come in. The stuff before, though, might not have seemed very Christmassy. Stuff before may not seem like the kind of thing that goes along with Handel's Messiah. Some scholars, not Christian scholars so much, but some scholars believe that this is sort of a later composition, this psalm. It has probably three different pieces of psalm-like material from other places, and here it's sort of sandwiched together in this psalm, and that's why it feels disparate in a few places. Of course, we believe that God inspired this book, the Bible. And so the order of Psalm 24 is there on purpose, and these things do go together. It starts, though, with a foundation. You notice on the back of your sermon notes page, the bulletin, there's a foundation that God is God in verses 1 and 2. That's where this psalm starts. The earth is the Lord's, all of it. All the people who are in it are his. Why? Well, simply because he made it. If he made it, it's his. Verse 2 says, 
Even the seas and rivers, it says, are founded and established. Why seas and rivers? Why did David pick out those two things in creation? Well, in Hebrew poetry, in Hebrew ancient culture, water was kind of viewed as chaotic, uncontrollable, sometimes used as a symbol for judgment or trouble. You know, you're out in the Sea of Galilee in this little boat and a storm comes in and you're in trouble. So seas are what we can't control. Rivers are what we can't direct. But David says, the Lord has founded those things. He's established those things. He's not threatened by them. He uses them. The Lord is the creator. And that's where the whole Bible begins, right? The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. And here in Psalm 24 and elsewhere, it says because he's created, he's the owner. In other words, God is God. That's what verse 1 and verse 2 is simply telling us. Oh, I know that sounds obvious. It sounds silly to say God is God. But that's really what it's getting at. It's what we also read this morning earlier in the service in Psalm 100. Verse 3 of Psalm 100 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. Know that God is God. It's he who made us and we're his. We're his people. We didn't make ourselves. We can't own ourselves. We're his. We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, we should enter his gates with thanksgiving. We should come into his courts with praise. We should give thanks and bless his name. Did you notice the connection between he created, he owns us, and we should praise him? It means that we owe him our allegiance. We owe him our obedience. We owe him our praise. He does have the right to command us. He made us. That's the foundation. God is God. But then David moves on to what I think is an assumption. Secondly, an assumption that there's worth and weight in God's presence. The worth and weight of God's presence is assumed, I think, in verse 3 when he says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? These are terms of entering God's presence. Now, many scholars believe that on the first and simplest level, Psalm 24 comes out of the events that took place in 2 Samuel 6. Now, many times in our study of the book of Psalms, we've gone back to the book of 2 Samuel. Because David writes a lot of the Psalms, and 2 Samuel records a lot of the events of the life of David. Here's one of those examples. In 2 Samuel 5, the Philistines have finally been defeated. Remember, that was David's first war with Goliath, the Philistine. They're finally defeated in 2 Samuel 5, and so now the people are ready to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem the center, the epicenter of of the promised land. The ark isn't Noah's ark. Let me clarify. Okay, they weren't bringing Noah's ark into the land. That would be very difficult, I'm sure, to move the giant ark. 
I'm talking about the gold box that was in Indiana Jones, right? And you open it and it'll melt your face if you open it. I think that's what I remember. Well, some of that's not in the Bible, but that's the ark we're talking about here. And in the Old Testament, the ark of the covenant represented God's presence. It was his stool. It was for his throne. It couldn't be touched. There were poles, wooden poles put through the side so that no man would touch the ark as it was carried. Later on, after David, once the temple's built, then the Ark of the Covenant is going to go into the Holy of Holies, basically God's bedroom, his throne room. It's the place of God's presence, and the Ark is the symbol of God's presence. So hopefully you can see how verses 7 through 10 in Psalm 24 relate to those events of the Ark coming into the city recorded in 2 Samuel 6. Lift up your heads, O gates. Get ready. The king of glory is coming in. The king is coming. And this king, notice the military emphasis here. This king is strong and mighty. He's the Lord who's mighty in battle. Do you remember that the Ark of the Covenant often went with the army into battle? And when the Ark was with them, they won. Not because necessarily it had magical power so that if somehow we found it today and U.S. was the one, the nation that found it, then boy, look out, we'll be sure to win every war to come. No. But it represented that God was there and God, hence, was winning the war for them. So here, the Lord is the Lord who's mighty in battle. Now God has won the war for his people against those wicked Philistines and he is entering his city as the glorious, victorious warrior king. So Psalm 24 is, like I'm saying, most originally, most likely originally written for this specific occasion of approaching God's presence with the ark. But the principles that can be drawn from Psalm 24 apply to so much more. This is not just a psalm about 2 Samuel 6, and then you turn the page and you say, well, other things happen, and this psalm isn't for us today. Oh no, this psalm has legs. Psalm 24 can relate to God's presence more generally, and we have to apply it to our lives and to the story of the Christ. God's presence is a worthy thing, and it's a thing we should seek. Verse 3 assumes that. The story of the Bible can be plotted along that trajectory of the theme of God's presence. You could say it's a story about his presence being given, and then being lost, and then being restored. In the garden, Adam and Eve enjoy God's presence. They walk with God in the cool of the day. They talk with him. Then sin enters the world, and they hide. They flee. They want nothing to do with having to talk with this God they're now in trouble with. And God comes calling mercifully, but there are consequences to sin. They're thrown out of the garden. They're thrown out of the place of God's presence. They're thrown out of his throne room, his temple. 
And then as you turn the page in your Bible from Genesis 3, where that sin first happened and that judgment occurred, into Genesis 4, you see Adam and Eve have kids, and their kids have kids, and other kids have kids, and pretty soon you have a big population. And it just says this, they got really good at building things, creating things, designing things, inventing things. That's all it says. There's no mention of God. In other words, they're going about their business. God isn't speaking, and they're not designing, building, creating, inventing to his glory. Oh, you don't get God speaking with anyone until Enoch. He's kind of an exception. And then you get Noah, Genesis 6. And really, the only purpose of God talking with Noah is so that Noah will build a boat so that one family still survives a universal judgment that's to come. And there's not much about God talking with his people or meeting with them or showing himself to them until you get to Genesis 12 and God reveals himself to Abraham. Oh, and then the story picks up later on. If we went all the way through Genesis to the end of Genesis, now, the beginning of Exodus, God's people are in Egypt and they're in slavery. Oh, there are many, but they're in slavery. So God comes talking to a guy named Moses. He reveals himself to Moses. He meets with Moses. And as they move out of Egypt by God's strong arm, Moses leads the people and Moses meets with God. Moses hears from God, but everyone else doesn't. They just see that God's out there. He's leading them in the wilderness with fire at night and cloud in the day. Eventually, God sets up camp in the middle of their camp. It's called the tabernacle. That's God's house. When they would set up their tents, they'd set up his. God was with them, in the middle of them. Eventually, they go to the promised land. What is that? It's a city of God's presence. And eventually, it's not a tent anymore. It's a, it's a, a beautiful temple, a permanent place of his presence. That's how the story ends with his people being brought to his presence. I read it last Sunday, Revelation 21.3, that one day in the new heaven and the new earth, God will dwell among them. They will be his people and God himself will be among them. Hear that? Among them. Like the garden, but better. So smack dab in the middle of this book, you got a guy named David who wrote Psalm 24 and he also wrote things like Psalm 16.11. That in God's presence is the fullness of joy. And at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. He also wrote Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord and this is what I'll seek. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That I might inquire about him and with him in his temple. So God's presence is a good thing. We should seek it. But God's presence has a tremendous amount of weight to it. It's not something we can pursue lightly. That is a massive understatement to say it's not something we can pursue lightly. I saw some little comment on the web this week, someone saying that Christmas is a time to touch God. As if touch him, you die. 
I said in passing last night that God reveals his presence in the Old Testament with things like smoke and fire and lightning and blinding light and earthquakes. Not puppies and daisies. Remember Moses boldly asking God if he can see his glory? In Exodus 33, Moses needs a shot in the arm. Right? He's with these grumbling, annoying people. And he says, God, go with us and show me your glory. And you'd expect God to backhand him to the other side of Jupiter for so presumptuously saying something like, just show me your glory. God patiently says, Moses, I'll tell you what I'll do. You can't see my glory, you'll die. Your face will melt. It's on Indiana Jones. It's a movie to come out later on. <laughs> you can't see my glory and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll put you in a rock, in a cleft of the rock, and, and then I'll put my hand over your face, and then I'll pass by, but just the backside of my glory will pass by. And then I'll move my hand away just at the end there so you can kind of see like the comet trail of my glory. And Moses gets that glory. Remember what happened to Moses after that? He just got the indirect, backside, comet tail of God's glory and his face was aglow. There are also these stories about God taking people out for messing with his presence. There's the story at Sinai where God's meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai to, to give the Ten Commandments and God makes them fence off the bottom of the mountain because if God's going to land on that mountain and show up in a real way, if they touch the mountain, they will die. So God warns them. They fence it off. God comes down. Smoke and lightning, fire, the mountain quaking. And then he calls for Moses. And Moses not gets to go up. Moses has to go up. And then as soon as he gets up there, God says, Moses, go back down. Warn them again not to touch the mountain. If they break through and try to look at me, they will die. There's the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. These guys are brothers, priests. And all it says is that they, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. It is some kind of burnt offering that was different than what the Lord commanded them. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died. There's the story of Uzzah. In 2 Samuel 6. We were just talking about 2 Samuel 6. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant getting moved into Jerusalem. And there's Uzzah. He's the guy in charge of the cart. On top of which is the Ark of the Covenant. And it says in 2 Samuel 6 that as they went over a threshold, it moved. And Uzzah instinctively reached to steady the Ark so it didn't fall to the ground. That seems harmless, if not wise. But God said, don't touch it. Uzzah touched it, and instantly God struck him down 
it says. David's even mad with God in the next verse because God did that. But it's God who's right, not David. So there's worth and there's weight in God's presence, which leads, I think, thirdly to Psalm 24, a dilemma. Who is qualified to come then? If God takes out people like Uzzah, Nadab and Abihu, then who's qualified to come to him? We all know about needing to be qualified for something. Are you qualified for that job? Are you qualified? Did you qualify for the state tournament? Did you qualify for a scholarship? Would you qualify for that raise? Are you qualified to go out with that girl? Chances are no, but that's okay. Go for it. Well, there's a two-part question in verse 3. Are we qualified to come into God's presence? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's going to climb up his hill? And then who can stay there? The other part of the question is, who can stand in his holy place? Not just go up to the mountain, but stay there. Well, then verse 4 gives us a four-part answer. Four qualifications are needed in order to go up God's mountain and to stand in his holy place. You need first clean hands, it says. Not good hygiene, but right actions, right? Things you do with your hands. And not just our hands. The hands represent the whole person here. Remember Pilate's famous washing of his hands, that feigned demonstration of innocence when the crowd was calling for Jesus to be crucified. and He washed his hands in a bowl and said that his hands were clean. They weren't. He was a wimp. He was a pacifier of the people. He gave in to the people and allowed what he knew to be an innocent man to be crucified unjustly. So you can get a bowl and you can wash up and you can try to say that you're innocent like Pilate did, even if it's just a symbol of innocence, but it's an empty symbol in Pilate's case. Clean hands in Psalm 24 represents a freedom from sin, no guilt. Sins of omission and sins of commission, sins where we didn't do the right thing, the good thing, what we're commanded to do, and sins of commission, where we did what God said not to do. This isn't relative, by the way, this thing of clean hands. Sometimes we hear about clean living. You live longer if you have clean living. Or maybe you hear about a guy at work who's squeaky clean, usually a guy with a pocket protector for some reason, right? Someone squeaky clean. And maybe he's good enough to qualify to be an FBI agent. I know they do some serious background checks if you're going to work for the government like that. Maybe he's good enough to run a successful political campaign, unlike so many we have before us today that have this skeleton in their closet and that skeleton in their closet. Maybe, maybe you don't have any skeletons in your closet, humanly speaking, Maybe you would qualify for being what people call today squeaky clean. But that's not what Psalm 24 means. Clean hands are perfectly clean hands, and 
David also says we need a pure heart. If clean hands refer to actions, then a pure heart refers to everything that's internal. Right thoughts. Even the ones people can't see. Ones we don't speak. Right emotions. Because God does command certain emotions of us. He tells us to rejoice. He tells us not to worry. Not to be angry. And even the hardest of them all, I think, is probably pure motives. Part of a pure heart is having pure motives. Who of us can say at any given time that we not only did the right thing, but that our hearts were perfectly pure? Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say that he thought there was enough ill motive in the best of his prayers to condemn him to hell forever. Pure heart and no vanity. It says, he does not lift up his soul to what is false. Really, it means what is empty, what is vain, what is idolatry. Idols can be statues in different cultures. Most likely for us, our idols are idols of the heart. A satisfaction that's not God. A rival love that isn't him. A trust that's bigger than him. The very first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. Means that we must be absolutely, consistently, unswervingly loyal to our Lord. Without distraction. Without competition. Nothing empty. And no deceit. Never any kind of deception. Nothing false. Nothing that's not real. Now I can imagine a few different possible responses to this, to the question of verse 3, who can enter into God's presence? One response would be, who cares? Who cares about climbing that hill? Who cares about being in his holy place. Well, go back to verses 1 and 2. Don't forget, God is God here. Like an ostrich, you can put your head in the sand to pretend he's not there. But you don't need to go to the hill or some place or even the Bible to see him, to know him, to know that he's there. He's everywhere. You can say, who cares? Look at your life. How's it working? Is it better without a God, even if he is a somewhat threatening one? Another response might be, oh, I can do that. What does it say? Clean hands? Good enough. Pure heart? Sure, I mean well. Even when I don't do what's perfectly right, I... I mean well. No falsehood? Well, no bad ones. Just the ones that help people out. Don't swear deceitfully. Okay, I, I can do that. That's me. If it's anyone, that's me. In fact, I, I do live up on the hill with the Lord. I touch his face every Christmas. 
Maybe another response would be probably closer to home for most of us Christians would be something like, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Well, I hope to. I'll try to. I'll try to meet his qualifications. I'll try to pass these tests. I'll do better tomorrow than I did today. And then to pray to the Lord, Lord, help me. Lord, let me meet these qualifications for your presence so I might enjoy more of you. But all of these are wrong-headed. Obviously, the first one is wrong-headed. I already said so. It's wrong-headed, too, to presume that we can, that we have met these standards. But it's also wrong-headed to think that Psalm 24 is giving you a to-do list. Do you know that song, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Song Is About You? Uh, Well, we could kind of apply it to this psalm. I think we could say it to ourselves. You're so vain, you probably think this psalm is about you. (laughs) This psalm isn't about you. This psalm isn't about me. The psalm is about the Lord. And we're slow to see that here in Psalm 24, and we're quick to put it on our to-do list and make a litmus test for ourselves, not because we're vain so much, but because we're what Martin Luther called hopelessly meritorious. That means we're consumed with this merit thing. We're all wanting to be justified. Maybe it's not wanting to be justified with God. Maybe you've found an alternate judge that you want to impress and you might qualify with. Or you might ignore this whole thing of trying to to pass the test, to be justified, to be qualified. You see, some deal with their guilt by pushing against it and denying that the guilt's there and denying there's any standard to live up to. And some deal with their guilt by being pushed by it. And they constantly try to meet the standard, to measure up, to walk the line, to keep their nose clean. We know from experience that we don't meet these conditions in Psalm 24. We know from Scripture that we've all fallen short of God's glory. It says in Psalm 14, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after him. Nope, they all have turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. None of us pass this test. None of us have these qualifications which makes John 1, 14 all the more amazing. He dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. How do you get from Psalm 24? None of us passed in the test to Jesus coming and dwelling among us and us beholding his glory. Well, there's a hint. Fourth thing in your outline is that there's a hint that righteousness can be received. Notice in verse 5. David talks about a kind of blessing which is received. A blessing that's not earned, a blessing that's received, like it's a gift. Notice he says in verse 5, there's a kind of righteousness which is from God. 
a righteousness which isn't earned. It's not part of qualifying. It's from him. What? And not just any God. David says this is the God of his salvation, our salvation. A God of salvation, a God which gives righteousness, a God which grants blessing and results in those who seek him, verse 6. They seek him. And these can seek the face of the God of Jacob, the God who wrestled Jacob. And Jacob said, as he named that place where he wrestled with God, the face of God, the God of Jacob. Can be sought. You can seek his face, but only through a blessing received, only through a righteousness from him, only from a God of salvation. It just hints, right? It's not quite clear yet, but hints of a righteousness which can be received. The answer, fifth, is here the coming of the righteous king. There's our hope. Verse 7. To 10, we see the coming of the righteous king. Lift up your heads, O gates. Get ready, city gates. The king of glory's coming. Like Like a building being moved that needs to get under an overpass, and it's too small. Get rid of the overpass. It's junky. It's broken down. It needs to go anyway. We gotta get this building in. Clear the way, gate. Take off the hinges and the door. King of glory is coming in, and he's big. He's big. So, who can come into God's presence? We can't. But, verse 5 hints at something that's hopeful, and then verse 6 answers the question. Here he comes. He can come in. He can go into the city. He can climb the mountain. He can stand in God's presence because he is God. He's the king of glory. And this is talking about Jesus. Jesus is that king of glory. And that's why Handel was right to put this in his great Messiah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ye ancient doors, so the king of glory can come in. That king of glory, Jesus, he alone had clean hands. He alone had a pure heart. He alone had no idols, no vanity, no emptiness, no deceit. Peter even, I think, makes a connection. First Peter 2, verse 22, I think Peter is pointing us back to Psalm 24 when he says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Huh. Here's the one who's going to enter God's presence for us. No deceit. The New Testament tells us all over the place that Jesus was without sin. He knew no sin. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He did his Father's will. He came to do his work. Now we can think of Jesus fulfilling Psalm 24 a number of different ways, a number of different times. One would be, of course, his birth. His birth. He came. He came. The king of glory came. We're the gates that need to get out of the way as he comes in. You can also think about his fulfillment of Psalm 24 in his triumphal entry, we call it. It's in John 12 and in Luke 19. 
It's where Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, the city. He comes in as the Messiah. Remember, it's the palm branches. Him riding on a donkey, fulfilling many passages, many promises to the Old Testament. One of which is what we see here in Psalm 24. Here he comes, the king of glory coming in. We can also think about Jesus fulfilling Psalm 24 in his sacrifice, where he died a sacrificial death. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But there's another one too. We can think about Jesus fulfilling Psalm 24 in his ascension. After he died and was raised, he was around here on earth, walking around, talking for some time before he was taken up. He ascended. In 1 Timothy 3, says, he was received into glory. Received? He has accepted. Glory? Yeah, the place of God's presence, the holy place, the real hill. But back to the sacrifice thing, would you turn to the book of Hebrews for one little trip there to see a connection between Psalm 24 and Hebrews? A connection about God's presence and how Jesus entering God's presence can give us hope. We have to go here or else it just looks like good news for Jesus. Jesus can enter but you're still without clean hands and you still don't have a pure heart and you still have vanity and idolatry and deceit. So Hebrews chapter 9 is one place, verse 11. There it says that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, a better tabernacle. The tabernacle of old was where they made the sacrifices. But Jesus has gone through a tent not made with hands, not of this creation, and he entered it once, unlike all those priests of the Old Testament. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He gave us hope by going in with a sacrifice. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. Those are just the copies of the true things. But he went into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Look at chapter 10. In verse 11... The writer of Hebrews says, every priest stands, notice stands, daily at his service. They keep repeating the same sacrifices over and over. These sacrifices never take away any sins. They only point to the solution, which takes away sin. That's Christ. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, then he sat down. He sat down. He doesn't keep working. He doesn't keep sacrificing. He sat down, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He ascended to the hill. He made atonement there, and now he stays. So what's it mean for us? Well, look at verse 21. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
let us draw near. What? Draw near? If you just search that phrase, draw near, in most English Bibles, for a lot, you'll see a lot of trouble about drawing near. Don't draw near. You can't draw near. Don't you dare draw near. We can draw near. And not just draw near, but draw near with a true heart. A true heart in full assurance of faith. We, who don't have clean hands, who don't have a pure heart, who know deceit all too well, who know idolatry like it's oxygen, we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, yes, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. One more, Hebrews 12, in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the hill. Oh, not a literal hill. You've come to where God lives. We're not there bodily yet. But one day we will be as Christians. But in spirit, we're there already. That's why Paul says, In Colossians 3, that we should set our mind on things above where Christ is seated. We're there already. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, better than the earthly Jerusalem. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What? You've come to the presence of God where angels live and dwell and party? You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to God, the judge. Now that should scare the pants off us. You have come to God, the judge. Unless there's one who's gone before us and he has made a way. You've come to the spirits of the righteous, those who've gone before us who are are now dead, those are made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, now Psalm 24, verse 5 makes sense, right? That there could be a blessing which is received. There can be a righteousness which isn't ours, it's from God, because he's the God of salvation. Now it makes sense. That means that Jesus isn't a helper. He's a savior. It means that he didn't just point the way. He is the way. Our hope is in his righteousness, not our own, and not even ours a little bit. Our hope isn't even in him making us better. Oh, he will. He's promised to do that too. But our saving hope is not resting on him making us better. If you believe that, you should be in a Roman Catholic church. That's what they believe. Protestants don't believe that. Protestants believe that we're declared righteous based on someone else's righteousness. And his righteousness is better than any of the filthy rags you can work up. Our hope is outside us. It's completely outside us. So Jerry Bridges tells us your best days don't even come close to earning God's favor. And your worst days don't even come close to being outside the reach of his grace. 
Now, let me anticipate a question. If you say, wait a minute, do you mean I can do whatever I want and still go to heaven? Is that what you're saying? I think I'd answer that with another question. But what do you want to do? If you believe that there's forgiveness in Christ, that he is your righteousness, that he is your life, that he died your death, what do you want to do? Do you want to follow him? Or do you want to besmirch his name? And if you say, no, I just want the forgiveness. I want forgiveness, and then I want to run away, and I want to do my own thing, and I want to play by my own rules. Do I still get to go to heaven at the end? Well, the Bible says in response, you must not have really seen your need if you're tempted to think that. You must not have been ever truly forgiven by the judge, the Savior. Because Jesus said those who are forgiven know that they're forgiven much. And those who are forgiven much, they love much. So the Christian life looks like this. A cycle of guilt, grace, and gratitude. You got to get that order right. You got to know which one you depend on. Which one is your hope. And you have to know that that cycle is continual until heaven. It's part of our conversion story. And it's also yesterday's news, right? That's how yesterday went for everyone in here. Hopefully, there was guilt. Hopefully, you also knew grace. Hopefully, you responded to that grace with gratitude. The real power to be like our righteous king, to live like our righteous king, rests on his finished work. The real power to live like the righteous king comes when we see our righteousness first and foremost as his righteousness, as a gift from him, as ours by grace and grace alone. And that kind of scandalous grace gives wings to the Christian life. John Bunyan said, run, John, run. The law commands, but it gives you neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly. It gives you wings.